This morning's scripture reading is taken from Mark 16, verses 1 to 8, and John 14, verses 1 to 7. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. John 14, verses 1 to 7. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are celebrating this morning the greatest event that has ever occurred in the history of this universe. The greatest news the world has ever known. Jesus is risen. And his rising changes everything. Jesus is risen. And his rising changes everything. He's risen. The resurrection event in Mark is the briefest account of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Mark is probably the earliest of them. And he records the fact of the resurrection and very little else. But the fact of the resurrection, that Jesus actually, physically, in history, rose from the dead, that fact is so profound, so earth-shattering, so controversial, so outside of the ordinary operations of our natural world, it, it is considered impossible by so many skeptics in our world. In a recent friendly online debate I was having with a professor at Rutgers University and cognitive scientist Julian Mussolino, who is very polite and gracious, 
he said this very clearly. He said it would take extraordinary evidence for me to ever believe such a thing, to which I agreed. Kind of surprised him. And then he said, these claims are magical thinking, to which I disagreed. And again, surprised him. Because the text before us invites us to see this is not magical thinking. This is fact. It is indeed magical in its implications. But it is not magical thinking because this really happened. Jesus really rose from the dead. So let's look at the text before us. Jesus has died. All responsible theologians and historians admit that Jesus lived and died. He was a real figure. But now we come to the actual evidence of the earliest eyewitnesses, these people that history considers to be the most credible witnesses of all. Mark is reporting an account of Jesus' life given to him from Peter, who was an eyewitness to these things. And Mark opens his resurrection account by saying some women on Sunday morning, after Jesus had been crucified on a Friday, some women went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. Now, this is an act of reverence for a beloved departed one. It's to help preserve the body and give honor to them. But it is also a clue, the first clue in our reading, that we're reading actual history, not magical or mythical literature. You see, women in the first century in Jewish culture were not even considered proper witnesses. They could not give testimony in trials because their testimony was considered too unreliable. So, given that culture, if you wanted to persuade people of the truth of an event, the first witnesses to an event, you would not have picked women to be them. But here and in all of the Gospels, it is women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The two Marys are mentioned here. They're mentioned in all of the accounts. Salome is probably mentioned here because Mark probably knew her. This account, starting with women as the first witnesses, is our first striking clue that this is actual history, no myth. But there's a second clue, and that's what they say to each other. They ask, who will roll away the stone from the entrance? You see, the stones for these tombs were very large. It often took between 6 and 20 grown men to move them. The larger, the more men it would take. And this stone would probably have been large because it was the tomb of a very prominent man, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the 70 rulers or Sanhedrin of Israel. Why is this a clue? Because these women knew that the stone was too heavy for them. They also knew, by the way, that there was a cohort of Roman guards stationed to stop people from moving the stone. The Roman guards, the large tombstone, make it extremely unlikely that Jesus' body got moved by somebody. That Jesus faked his death and came out. No. The best evidence of history is very simple. Jesus was dead. And by Friday evening, he was in that tomb, dead. A large tomb with a large stone and a Roman guard. But now, on Sunday morning, when the women got there, the stone has been rolled away. The guards are gone. And the tomb is empty. Well, not exactly empty, actually. There are two figures in it. Mark only records one because in that day, if only one of them spoke, it was fine to just record the one 
who spoke. But the other Gospels say there were two angels. Mark speaks about the one who has an appearance that is dazzling and wearing a white robe. Now, what's the clue here? Is it the fact that there are angels? Yeah, that's a pretty big clue that something earth-shattering is going on. But even more powerful is what he says. Because this is what the angel says. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Go, see where they have laid him. Why is that a clue? (laughs) Well, think about it for a moment. These women have followed Jesus for years. They have heard Jesus say time and again, he's going to die and rise again. Mark chapter 10, verse 34 is an example. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You see, Jesus had told them multiple times. And yet, the tomb is empty. The angels are there. But the angels feel that these people still need some help being persuaded. Why? Because people are people. People back then knew that rising from the dead was not ordinary. It was not the way the natural world worked. They may not have been as as secular as our culture is today, but they were still people. They weren't stupid. They knew that the idea of someone rising from the dead was kind of magical thinking. An empty tomb was not enough. The angel had to tell him what it meant. Except that that even didn't work. And here's our final clue. How did the women respond? It says they went out and they fled everywhere. (laughs) For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Wow. This is the ending of Mark's whole gospel. It it finishes with, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Think about this. Now, if you were trying to create a myth to convince people that Jesus had risen from the dead, would you end your gospel like that? No. This ending is so abrupt. It makes the witnesses look foolish and doubtful. Actually, just like you and I probably would be. Imagine if someone told you your cousin was raised from the dead. Just go see him. He's in Markham. How would you feel? Yeah, whatever. C.S. Lewis, former professor of English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge, said this about the gospel accounts of the resurrection. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer, without any predecessor or successor, suddenly anticipated a whole new literary technique of modern realistic novel. No. This account does not fit the bill of a carefully crafted myth. It has all the texture and all the taste of real, gritty, historical truth. It has all the warts and all the funkiness of real eyewitness testimony. This is an extraordinary ending to Mark's gospel. It fits the extraordinary event that the world was about to find out about. Something crazy, magical, but true had really happened. 
Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus is risen. Secondly, his rising changes everything. Now, we want to take just a few moments and realize not just the truth of the resurrection, but the staggering impact of it. So we're going to go back in time, back from before the resurrection to some of Jesus' words in his last supper discourse in the upper room with his disciples found in John 14. This is just a couple of days before this resurrection. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's a context. They know he's leaving. And so they're wondering. They're troubled. What are we supposed to do when he's gone? And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where you are, that where I am, you may be also. So here, in the context of troubled disciples, Jesus says, there are many rooms in my Father's house, and I'm leaving you to go and prepare a place for you. Now let's just stop for a minute and ponder what this means. He's going to leave them. Where's he going to go? He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and be arrested. And then he's going to go before the high priests and rulers and be tried. And then he's going to go to a cross and be nailed. And there on the cross, he's going to take the guilt of the sin and the moral wrong of every single one of you and I who believe in him And he's going to pay its guilt. Why is he going to die? To prepare a place for you. Then he's going to rise from the dead, which we are celebrating this morning. He rises from the dead to break the power of death, to break the power of sin, to corrupt and dominate us. He is going to give us the power to rise with him. Why? So he can prepare a place for us. And then he's going to ascend into heaven, literally leave this earth and physically rise and go to the right hand of God. Why? To prepare a place for us. You see his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his seating at the right hand of God were all pointed towards, focused on one thing, to prepare a place for us. Why? Why? He says that where I am, you may also be. So now we get to the first way that the resurrection changes everything. And that is, it changes how we understand God. You see, most of us, when we think of God, have all kinds of views of God. Some of the more popular ones, he's some being up there who is very different from us, very uh, emotionally different detached from us, kind of like an absentee landlord perhaps, Uh, pretty ambivalent about us. He's aloof. He might be irritated or disappointed in us. Most of us who are religious feel this vague sense of disappointment. We're disappointed in ourselves, so we project that onto God, and we think there's something fair about that. But I want to bring you back to this analogy. I'm with you. I'm leaving to prepare a place, and I'm coming back to bring you to where I am, that we will be together. You know what that analogy is back then? That's a bridegroom putting the engagement ring, as it were, on the bride and saying, I'm going to go back. 
I'm going to prepare our house for us to live in. And then I'm going to come and claim you as my bride. I'm going to marry you. You see what Jesus is saying? Is that he's doing all of this out of a fervent pursuing groom's love. God's pure love. The love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit expressed by Jesus. Is the love of a groom pursuing a bride with all the ardency, all the intensity of early love. He's not some distant landlord ruling the universe but uninvolved. He's a groom pursuing a fickle, wandering, and sometimes adulterous bride. That's you and me. Doing whatever is necessary to betroth himself to her. In this case, the cross and the resurrection as it were, are the betrothal. They're the engagement ring. The ascension and the return or the consummation and the marriage. Now you need to feel the personal fervency of his love to you. It's a love that pursued us all the way to the depths of becoming a human and as Susan read, becoming human all the way to the depths of emptying himself and emptying his life in blood for us on the cross. The depth and intensity of his love is infinite. But it's not just the intensity. It's the constancy. From the beginning of time, this God named Jesus determined to die for us, determined to give his life for us, determined to rise for us, determined to go back to heaven to prepare a place for us, and then came down and executed the plan in full congruence with his Father and the Holy Spirit to then rise and then rise into heaven so that he could send us a spirit to be with us as a first deposit, as it were, of our inheritance, and then to come again to bring us fully and finally, unchangeably, into his presence forever. It's unstoppable, this love. That same determination of love for us that sent Jesus, setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem, to allow him to experience the rejection, the mocking, the false trial and accusations that sent him into the garden of Gethsemane and the great agony of temptation when he finally could say, let your will be done. And then to willingly go and be nailed to a cross and take our guilt upon himself, that determination, men and women, boys and girls, that same constant love he showed when he was on this earth is the exact same love he has right now for you. It hasn't changed one iota. Jesus right now reigning at the right hand of God has that same burning, intense, constant love for you. He will finish what he started. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, in his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners, said these words. I quoted them a few weeks ago. I created some psychological noise. I will create it again. It is as if he had said, I cannot live without you. I shall never be fully at rest until I have you where I am, that so we may never part again. My heart is so set upon you that if I have any glory, he shall have part of it. Isn't that beautiful? That's his heart. Now, some of you take issue with the idea in this quote. It's the same issue people have with the Hillsong song we sang, What a Beautiful Name. Jesus doesn't need us. Ah, you're partly right. 
There's no need in Jesus for anything outside of him to complete him. He is ase. He is fully sufficient. He is God. He has no needs outside himself. That is true. But God in his character of holiness does have needs. He has a need to exalt and love the thing which is most lovely in the universe. His godness requires him to pursue the glory of the most glorious thing in the universe, which is himself. His holiness requires him to express the love that he has inside outward. He has no external, but yes, by his holiness, an internal necessity to be without sin, to be pure and lovely, and to express the love that defines him in all of its fullness. I think what Goodwin is saying is this. Inside the excellencies of God and his own love, there is an internal impelling necessity to share that love. And that is why we are here. His love he needs to share. Out of the abundance of his love, he seeks an object of his love. And that is those who he has called his own. And them whom he has called. He has not dropped or dipped or diminished one iota. The intensity and the constancy of his love. It changes our view of God. But also these verses changes, change our view of life. See the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. Changes our whole understanding of what our life is about. Because in our modern culture. We live self-constructed lives. We make our own choices, our own desires. We have our own dreams, obstacles, and trials. And we think of our life as something that we construct and architect. There is no meaning aside from the meaning we assign to it. So we have a self-architected, self-saturated, self-guided, self-constructed life where we are in control and we give meaning to ourselves. Do you hear the language of our modern culture. Ourselves are the directors of our lives and the goal of our lives. We are literally self-saturated and self-centered in our understanding of life. But Jesus' final words here point to a vastly different reality. Listen to what he said. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way There's no path of life that is separate from Jesus. He is the way. He sets the parameters. He is the human par excellence. He has shown us what true humanity looks like, what it is meant to be like, what it is meant to end up like. The way of living begins and ends with him who created us and then finally incarnated to become one of us and defined humanity for all time. He is the centerpiece of all meaning in life. He is the way. He is the truth. There is no truth that is not his. There is no truth that contradicts his. There is no ultimate truth that does not acknowledge him. That is why Jesus can say, if you abide in me and my words, you will bear much fruit. His words are not just true. They are the truth and the lens through which all truth is measured and understood. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. 
There is no eternal life. Life as it was meant to be. Life with God as we were created for outside of the mediation and the propitiation of him and his work. Nobody comes to the Father, he says, except by me. Final implications. If you're here, online or here in the room, and you are still considering Christianity You need to see that when you die, the resurrection tells us you will rise. You will meet Jesus, risen and ascended, clothed in glory with the nail marks still in his body. And he will say to you, what did you do with me? The way, the truth, and the life. Because your whole life was meant to point to me, to be guided by me. Did you give your life into my hands? Did you trust in my pursuing love and surrender to my work on the cross? Did you receive my forgiveness accomplished at Calvary? By giving your life into my hands, you will want to spend eternity with God. But I am God. I am meeting you. What did you do with me? If you're a typical 21st century Canadian, you will say something like, well... I've been better than most people. And Jesus will look at you and say right back to you, you climbed the wrong ladder. You climbed the ladder of your self-architected, self-controlled, self-constructed, self-guided morality. And by your standard of what you'd constructed, you think you're better than most. Wrong ladder. This is the ladder you were actually created to climb, the ladder of centering on me, trusting in me, loving me, depending upon me, acknowledging me. And so, therefore, you're guilty of climbing the long, wrong ladder. You climb the ladder of self. Who will pay for the guilt of your self-centeredness? Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, says Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus will ask, you have turned to your own way and climbed the wrong ladder. Who bears the guilt for that? Did you accept my kind offer when I went to the cross? Did you accept the offer of my life and my blood to pay for that guilt? Or did you say, I'm better than most, I think I can handle it by myself? You can't. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Men and women, Jesus is saying to all of us, if we want to get out of here, this broken world, to there, the unbroken world, we must have our sins forgiven by Jesus. And so Jesus says to you, if you're considering Christianity, come to me now. I rose from the dead. I proved I am who I said I am. Come now. Ask me into your life today. Go to him. Stop creating reasons to delay. History has proven Jesus is who he says he is. Act on what is true. If you're a Christian, I have two applications for you this morning. Firstly, do not doubt his love for you. Do not doubt his love for you. God's whole purpose in incarnating, living, suffering, dying and rising, ascending, being seated at the right hand of God and interceding for us was to bring you to where he is 
the same intensity of love that he showed at the cross he has for you now. The same constancy of love that allowed him to go through that whole process to keep loving people when they rejected him is the love that he has for you right now. There are no conditions to his love. There are no barriers to his love. There are no stoppers to his love. There's nothing that diminishes his love. If you have faith in him, faith as small as a mustard seed, you have love from him so big that you could not imagine it. This love, infinitely intense, infinitely powerful, infinitely transforming, infinitely lasting, is all yours and always will be. Jesus doesn't stop loving you that deeply because you had a bad year from COVID. Jesus doesn't slow down loving you like a bridegroom because you were a bad dad this month or you did something really wrong at work. Jesus' love for you never stops and never diminishes. Death could not stop it. The grave could not cancel it. He rose in all of his glory and all of his love. Do not doubt his love for you. He's preparing a place for you. Secondly, prepare you for the place he has for you. When Jesus rose, Colossians 3, which we're about to study, says you rose with him. You now have the power by his Holy Spirit, you have the power to prepare yourself for that great place of sinlessness and sadlessness. That's not a word, I know, sorry. Stop looking at yourself and the inadequacy of your spiritual devotion, for pitiful we are. And look up, see Jesus risen and reigning and holding you with him, risen and reigning, glorious and victorious. And see who is beside him because it says in Colossians 3, you, if you're a Christian, have been raised with Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, with that power, prepare this place, prepare your soul, prepare your heart by giving it to him anew. By asking his spirit to empower you to express the inexhaustible, unstoppable, infinite love of Jesus to others. His spirit can give that to you. His spirit will ask him for it. Confess your sin. Clean out the garbage. Maybe it's garbage day in your life. But prepare your heart to be a fit place for him to reside while he prepares a place for us in eternity to reside. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are risen and in your rising everything changes. May it be that we who are not yet Christian would finally give in to the truth and the fact of your resurrection and realize that in all of your glory you come to us. And for each and every person who is here who is considering Christianity, I pray that today would be the day that they hear your command to come, and they come. And for those who have come, I pray that today would be a day that they put aside all doubt that you love us, that they put aside all doubt that you love us as deeply as you did the day you died for us, and that we put aside our own lusts, our own desires, our own bucket lists, and we prepare our hearts to follow you in love, to follow you in obedience, 
to follow you in devotion and worship. You have risen. Help us to worship the risen Christ all the days of our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.